The Bible reading tonight is from Zechariah 6, the whole chapter. I looked up, um, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven, going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, and the one with dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, Look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, um, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Zosdak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Um, I was away for about a month, and uh, I've missed many of you. <clears throat> I've missed all of you. No, I'll take that back. I've missed all of you. <laughs> I misspoke. Um, it is really good to be back. Um, and jumping back into Zechariah, um, it's uh, heads up, it only gets harder from here. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be focusing in uh, this talk really just on verses 9 to 15, which is the second section, second half of the chapter. I'm not going to be focusing on verses 1 to 8, and I just want to explain why before I kind of get into it. It's because I, as I read verses 1 to 8, I think that belongs with chapter 5. And if you were here last week, you heard Ken's sermon on chapter 5, which is all about how God has rooted out and shipped out wickedness out of Israel. He's put it in a basket and sent it off to Babylon. And I think what's going on in the first eight verses is that God just wipes out that wickedness. Basically, verses 1 to 8 are a picture of God dealing with wickedness the same way that a bomb disposal unit deal with a dangerous package, right? You package it up, you take it to a safe distance, and then you detonate it. That's what's going on in verses 1 to 8. And so I didn't want to preach on that because I think that's the same message you heard last week in chapter 5. So... I'm going to focus on verses 9 to 15. Hopefully that will be helpful for us. Let me pray and uh, and then we'll have a think together. Almighty God, uh, we really do thank you for a free time, peaceful time tonight. 
to have your word open in front of us and hear you speaking. Uh, God, we know the distance that exists between this text and us, and we need you to bridge that gap for us by your spirit so that we would understand and believe and live in light of the truth that you're speaking to us tonight. So please help us by your spirit to pay attention, to think, and to trust you. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, on April the 15th, 2019, uh, it was the day that Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris caught fire. And uh, I'm sure we can remember those iconic images watching that church burn. Uh, I had been to Notre Dame a couple of times, and so I remember watching those news reports the day that that happened and feeling a, like a genuine sadness watching this 800-odd-year-old building go up in flames because it, it is an, a beautiful, spectacular feat of architecture, if nothing else, to see something like that wasted was such a shame. But more than that, this building held so much culture within it, uh, so much history, so much significance associated with that building. It was a sad thing to watch. But what was extraordinary watching those news reports on that day, even as the, the flames were still licking up the sides of this building, there were news reports of donations being sent in uh, from all over the world, vast donations towards the cost of rebuilding Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, the French people provided a lot of it, but people from all over the world were pledging money uh, towards this project. And within 10 days of the fire, one billion US dollars had been pledged towards the rebuilding of Notre Dame. Turns out they actually needed more money than that. That wasn't enough, but anyway, that's another story. A billion dollars from all over the world towards something like this. Why would people give so much money towards something like this, this project? Uh, the night of the fire, uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, went on television and he gave a speech, and this is what he said in the speech. Notre Dame is the epicenter of our life, the kilometre zero of France. It is so many books, so many paintings. It is the cathedral of all the French people, even those who've never set foot in it. Her story is our story, and she is burning. Why did people give a billion dollars to rebuild Notre Dame Cathedral? Because her story was their story. In a sense, Notre Dame Cathedral was the identity of a lot of people. Now, I think it's probably true for most of us, all of us, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, that the thing that we are willing to invest in is the thing in which we find our identity. I think that's largely true. And so if you want to discover what the epicenter of your life is, you want to find out what the kilometer zero of your heart is, you want to find out what the essence of your story is, well, just look to where you invest yourself and you'll find the answer. Uh, whatever it is that you make sacrifices for, uh, whatever it is that you spend your time and your money and your energy doing, whatever it is that consumes your thought life, if you identify that thing, I will tell you that's your identity. That's what you're building your identity on. And perhaps you just want to take a moment right now even to think about what that is for you. Where does your time, your energy, your investment go? It'll be different for each one of us. Maybe it's your work. Uh, maybe it's your public profile. Maybe it's your body. Maybe it's your property portfolio. Maybe it's your educational achievements. What is it that you are investing in? Jesus said, of course, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we invest in reveals where we locate our identity. Now, our passage today, uh, it closes off the first half of the book of Zechariah, I think. 
Uh, and I think it's a pretty good summary, in fact, of everything that's come before it. Uh, you can remember, if you've been here for any of the series, uh, what's going on in Israel at the time. Uh, the Israelites, God's people, have returned from exile in Babylon, uh, and they've returned to Israel with these huge expectations about what life might be like when they get back. Uh, but all of that build-up, all of those big hopes and dreams that they'd brewed for 70 years in Babylon, when they get back, they are immediately disappointed. And their disappointment largely centers around the state of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that building was the epicenter of their life. It was their kilometer zero. It was the beating heart of their story because the temple represented the relationship between Israel and her God. The temple was the one place on earth that you could go to meet with your God. It was the one place on earth that you could go to have your sins dealt with through the sacrificial system. But for nearly a 100 years, that building had been in ruin. And since the exiles had returned to Jerusalem, very little had been done about it so far. Uh, the people who'd come back had been really disappointed just by the scale of the thing. It was tiny in comparison to the temple that they used to know a hundred years ago. They were discouraged by the opposition that they were facing from the Persians at the time. And, and quite frankly, they'd become comfortable. Uh, they had prioritized the building of their own homes now that they were back in Israel instead of God's house. And that lack of investment in the temple, it indicated that God's people didn't really have their identity based in the Lord. And so it's into that context that, I, that Zechariah gets those eight visions uh, showing that God has indeed returned to Israel. Now that God's back, sin has got to go. That's what those visions have all been about. And at the end of these visions, chapter 6, verse 9, Zechariah wakes up and the word of the Lord comes to him, verse 9. And we finally get here, I think, the, the, the cash value from all of those visions, the application of what this has all meant. God has returned, sin must depart, and so what? What does that mean now for the Israelites, now that they're back? Well, what this passage is going to show us is that their priority has to be participating in building the temple. That's the so what. They are to invest now in what God is doing in the land. That's their priority and that's what this passage is going to show us. And so two points tonight. The first point we'll see from verse 9 to 13 is a call to invest in the builder of the church. Invest in the builder of the church. So let's have a read again from verse 9. Follow along with me. Verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who've arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, Take the silver and gold and make a crown. Now, uh, when the Persians had first declared that the Jewish people could leave and come back to Jerusalem, uh, you would have perhaps imagined that all of the Israelites in exile would have just packed their bags and headed back on day one. Uh, but that's actually not what happened. It, it was what happened. You remember when they left slavery in Egypt, they all left en masse. But here, they've just started to come back in dribs and drabs. And there's a reason that Israel didn't all come back at once. Because you see, the land of Babylon, the city of Babylon, it was a bustling metropolis at the time. 
Uh, it was a city that was protected by vast walls. It was a safe place to be. It was a city filled with culture. It had those hanging gardens, ancient wonders of the world. It even had a zoo. It was the place to be in the ancient world. And the Jews, having been there for about 70 years, they had massively invested in that place. They had sunk down deep roots in Babylon. And so perhaps it was thanks to political leaders like Daniel, who you can read about in other books of the Bible, that the Jewish people enjoyed some measure of security in Babylon. And so the question is, well, why on earth would they want to leave Babylon to come back to Jerusalem at this point? Jerusalem, which is just this pile of rubble. And there was no walls, no culture, no temple. It wasn't a very appealing prospect for people to come back. That's my point. And so it is notable, significant. We are supposed to be impressed when we read in verse 10 of these three guys who do decide to come back, these three men who've done just that. And if you look at their names carefully, each of their names contains a hint, I think. Each of their names contains God's name, Yahweh, or part of it at least. So Tobijah, Yah, that means the Lord is good, for example. And I think what that's indicating to us is that not all of the people who have been in exile for 70 years have assimilated into Babylonian culture. Some of the people, some of the Jewish people have been faithful and have kept their spiritual identity over that time. And so these three guys come back carrying gold and silver, uh, presumably because they want to give it to the building project of the temple. They know what's going on in Jerusalem and they want to be a part of it. And that's pretty similar as well, isn't it, to what happened in the Exodus when they left Egypt. Israel came out with all sorts of treasure in order to give it to the building of the tabernacle. They gave their gold and silver. And so it seems like maybe these three men have cottoned on that God is doing something very similar to what he did in the Exodus. God has come back to his people in Jerusalem to bless them, to be with them. And so in faith, they've taken the step of leaving Babylon and going and participating in this project. But in verse 11, something very strange happens. Uh, God tells Zechariah to take this gold and silver and to melt it down, go to Josiah's house, rather Josiah, probably an, an artisan or a craftsman of some sort, melt down those that uh, treasure, turn it into a crown. What's a crown for? It's for a king, isn't it? Now, the Jewish people at this point, they had a certain set of expectations. They had been told and promised certain things. Uh, they had the expectation, quite legitimately, that the temple was going to be rebuilt. That was that was plausible. The previous king of Persia uh, had actually told them, you're allowed to go and do that. Go and build your temple. That was fair enough. But the idea of the king coming back, the monarchy being reestablished, that was unthinkable at the time. Uh, because if you make a crown as an Israelite, you are saying to the Persians, we don't want you as our king anymore. It's an act of sedition against the Persians. What is this, that they're making a crown for a king? You do remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, in Zechariah's fifth vision, we've been told this already, actually. It shouldn't come as a surprise. We've been told that a king is needed for that temple building project. You can go back and read that in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we get pointed to a man named Zerubbabel, who's the kind of Jewish governor at the time. He was a distant descendant of King David. And so we're thinking maybe, maybe Zerubbabel's the one who's going to get this crown. That sounds plausible, perhaps. But no, that's not what happens, is it? They go and put this crown on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josedach. Now, if you were a Jewish person seeing this or hearing about this, uh, you would be shocked by what you're seeing because any any good Jewish kid growing up going to Saturday school would know 
that kings in Israel come from the tribe of Judah and priests in Israel come from the tribe of Levi. And any time those tribal boundaries get kind of blurred, trouble happens. God's judgment happens. Anytime a priest takes on some of the role of a king or anytime a a king acts like a priest, uh uh-uh, God's not pleased about those things. So what is going on here? A crown on the head of the high priest? Is Zechariah saying that Joshua the high priest is somehow going to be the king and that he's going to be the one who's going to overthrow the Persians and liberate Israel or something? Is that what's going on? Well, this kind of strange coronation service, it continues in verse 12, uh, where Zechariah, after doing that to Joshua, he then points Joshua to another person, another kingly person who he calls the branch. Let's have a read from verse 12. Look who Zechariah talks about here. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It's he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed in majesty and will sit on and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Now, that kind of language, that promise about someone called the branch, uh, that has come up already in the book of Zechariah, if you were paying attention in chapter 4. It's a name that is given to the great king that Israel had been promised, that one from the line of David, who one day was going to rule over all of God's people in wisdom and righteousness and truth. And Zechariah is picking up on that hope here of the branch, and he says that great king who is coming, that branch, Actually, he's the one who's going to build the temple. The branch is going to do it. Uh, The branch is going to be the one who is clothed in majesty. The branch is going to be the one who ultimately is going to rule and lead God's people. It's not actually going to be Zerubbabel. It's not actually going to be Joshua. Ultimately, it's going to be the branch. And so somehow, as this happens, this great king, along with him, there's going to be a great high priest, it seems like. Like Joshua, someone who can deal with the sin of the people. That's what a priest did. And both are needed, a king and a priest, and there's going to be harmony between these two somehow. You see, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, they were not that guy. They were just, if you like, illustrations of the guy who was to come. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the film Zoolander. Have you seen that film? Um, th- there's a scene there where Derek Zoolander, who is this ridiculously good-looking but like utterly brainless male supermodel, uh, he's being shown this scale model of a school that's going to be built in his name. And Zoolander kind of takes some time to carefully kind of consider it and look at this model. And then in a fit of rage, he throws the model onto the floor and it shatters into a million pieces. And and he yells out, he goes, what is this, a centre for ants? How can we expect children to learn how to read if they can't even get inside the school? And and the people who are there with him, before they can uh, kind of explain this is just a scale model, he interjects and he says, I don't want to hear your excuses. The school needs to be at least... Three times bigger than this. Now, uh, it's clear as you read Zechariah 6, isn't it, that Zerubbabel and Joshua are not the long-promised branch. They are just the scale model replica of what is to come, anticipating the real thing. And so as you read this, you are left looking for someone who is not just three times bigger, who is vastly bigger, vastly more majestic than Joshua or Zerubbabel. 
And unless this is your first talk in the book of Zechariah, in which case I apologise, this is a tough place to jump into the book, you won't be surprised to find out that this branch turns out to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, this identity of Jesus is pronounced loud and clear. For instance, when you get to the book of Hebrews, in the, in the introduction words to that great letter, it describes how Jesus fulfills this job description that Zechariah has been talking about. I want to read you one verse from Hebrews chapter 3 and see what's included in this sentence. Speaking of Jesus, it says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See what it's saying there? Jesus is both priest, the one who can provide purification for sins, and king, the one who sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the branch. And back in Zechariah chapter 6, as God points people towards the branch, he's, he's wanting them to invest themselves in him, to hope for him, to wait for him, to build their lives on him. Now, imagine hearing that as an Israelite back in Jerusalem in 520 BC. Imagine being told to invest yourself in this one who is to come. Sure, leaving Babylon to come back to Jerusalem, that would seem very costly. Recommencing work on the temple amidst opposition, that would seem very costly. Giving my gold and silver to make a crown for a high priest, that would seem an incredibly costly and dangerous thing to do. But if you saw the certainty of the future that Zechariah was talking about here, well, you might say it's costly, but it's not risky, is it? Do you see the certainty of this future that Zechariah is talking about? Look at how emphatic these words are from verse 12. He will, the branch will branch out from this place. Verse 13, it is he who will build the temple. He will be clothed in majesty. He will be a, a priest on his throne. There is no doubt that this one is coming and that he will accomplish these things. Uh, you remember that film, Back to the Future 2? Second film illustration tonight, I know. Uh, but if you remember uh, in that classic film, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, he uh, gets in his time machine and he goes to the distant future, all the way to that distant time of 2015. <laughs> and uh, in 2015, he finds in a shop window a book called The Sports Almanac, and it contains the record of all the sporting results for the last 50 years of the 21st century. And Marty McFly has this great idea that if I just get that book and get back in my time machine and go back to my present, which for him is 1985, well, then I could really make the best of this situation. I could place all these bets on, on the sporting events and I could win big. And uh, now if you've seen the film, you know that that's actually not how it turns out. There's complications along the way. But just imagine, hypothetically, that Marty McFly did do that. Imagine he got back to 1985 and you saw Marty McFly going to his bank and emptying his bank account, emptying his savings account, perhaps emptying the savings account of his parents and placing those bets. Well, you could say that's a very costly thing for him to do, couldn't you? But with the sports almanac in his hand, it's not a risky thing for him to do, is it? Because he knows how the future will turn out. Friends, have you realised that unlike these three exiles that we meet in Zechariah 6, you and I have the privilege of standing at the end of the ages. We have the privilege of being able to look back 
and see how every detailed promise and prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have seen the branch build his temple, his people, his church. We've seen that. We have seen this risen King Jesus enthroned in heaven, reigning forever. We see even now our great high priest interceding for us. We have seen these promises fulfilled. In other words, this sports almanac has proven entirely trustworthy. And so here's the question. Why on earth would you bet your money on anything else? Why would you give and invest your life on anything that is not as certain as the Lord Jesus? All of those things that you could build your identity around, no matter how sturdy they seem right now, one day they will all go up in smoke like Notre Dame Cathedral. Your work, your personal profile, your hobbies, your property portfolio, your body, your educational achievements, up in smoke. Friends, instead of investing your life in those things, invest yourself in the branch. He's the builder of the church. He is your one and only high priest. He is your rightful king. So make Christ your identity. Make him your kilometer zero. Make him your story. Following him, yes, it's costly, but it's not risky. Our second point tonight, which is related and is much briefer, is that if you are persuaded that, yes, Jesus is the builder of the church, then secondly, you ought to invest in the building of the church. That's the second point for us tonight. Invest in the building of the church. So read from verse 14 again and discover what happens to this crown that's been put on Joshua's head. Verse 14. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, if we've been following this, <clears throat> Joshua doesn't get to keep the crown. After all, he isn't really the branch. He's just the center for ants. Uh, instead, this crown is to be given back to the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and there to put it in the temple once it's built as a memorial, it says there. What's the point of a memorial? Well, it's a, a visual, tangible promise of what is to come. A promise perhaps to those who are still in exile in Babylon, uh, that the branch is coming. This would have acted, I think, as a call to those exiles still hanging out in Babylon to return to the land of Jerusalem, come back and build the temple. And if you look closely at verse 15, I think you get an indication that it's not just those exiles in Babylon who this is a call for. Uh, you remember back to the third vision of Zechariah where we saw God also calling the nations to be grafted in and join his people. Even those Gentiles, those ones who are far away, are invited to come and join him, to be grafted in, to join this building project of the temple. And again, I think that the New Testament picks up directly on this image of those far away being called into God's people. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2, which I think the Apostle Paul alludes directly to this verse here when he says in Ephesians 2, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, who's he talking about? Us, Gentiles, non-Jews saying, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 
So I don't know everyone in this room. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're not a Christian. You're thinking, uh, you know, uh, God's not for me. Jesus, not for me. The kingdom of God, not for me. The church, definitely not for me. Can I tell you, if that's what you're thinking tonight, lovingly, you're wrong. It is for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far away you might feel yourself to be, the branch extends his forgiveness even to you. And more than that, he actually invites you into his people, into his kingdom, the church, and he invites you to to join with us in building this people. This is an offer for absolutely anyone, even you. Let me say at the end of this passage, verse 15, uh, it might dampen your uh, enthusiasm a little bit as you come to the end of this chapter because it does seem like there's a bit of a condition attached here in verse 15. Did you notice that? Uh, Zechariah says, this will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. And reading that, uh, we might conclude that the success of the church is now somehow kind of resting on our shoulders Uh, that God's kingdom is somehow kind of conditional on our obedience. Uh, And on one level, I want to say loud and clear, no, that's not the case. Uh, It can't be the case because as we've already read this evening, uh, the branch will build his church. The branch will gather weak and sinful and disaffected people into his people. He will forgive them. The branch will do this. He will graft people in. And that's kind of been the point of the book of Zechariah so far, that God will do what we cannot do. So no, it's not conditional on us in one sense. But in another sense, it kind of is. Because if the exiles had just remained in exile in Babylon, well, then the temple wouldn't have been built, would it? Here's the truth, friends. God uses his people. He uses us to achieve his purposes, to build his church. And so let me just say directly, we can't lock ourselves away in a holy huddle and expect God's kingdom to continue to be built. We don't have that option. If we don't speak and if we don't love and if we don't give and if we don't share and if we don't go, then God's kingdom will not grow. So I reckon that brings us back to where we started this evening, that where we invest ourselves in reveals something about our identity. As Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, I want to ask you, where is your treasure this evening? Where is your heart? Is your heart in Babylon? Is it living in that comfort, that ease, that security of this life? Or have you invested yourself in the builder of the new Jerusalem? Have you invested yourself in God and his people? Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Uh, Many of you will know that I was in the U.S., Uh, a few weeks ago, and the church uh, that I spent some time at had this plaque uh, up on the outside of their church building with a quote by Jim Elliott. If you don't know who Jim Elliott was, he was a guy who graduated university in the US in 1949, and uh, he was a a very successful guy. He had his whole life ahead of him. He was young, intelligent, good-looking. People were telling him he should go and be a movie star. He was a good actor. Uh, He could have done anything. He could have quite easily settled into a very comfortable middle-class American existence. Uh, But he didn't do that. Instead, uh, he chose to hit the mission field and to go to Ecuador. 
and to go and share the gospel with the violent and polygamous people of the Huarani tribe, along with his new wife, Elizabeth. Uh, people told Jim and Elizabeth that they were wasting their lives. Uh, Jim's family begged him not to go, but they went nonetheless. And uh, sure enough, after they arrived, after they'd spent a little bit of time learning the language, uh, Jim, along with a number of his missionary colleagues, were killed by some of the Huarani tribesmen, leaving Elizabeth widowed with a young child. Uh, and before his death, in his uh, journal, Jim wrote this famous now quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim invested his life in the branch, trusting that from that place, God's kingdom, God's gospel would go out. And you know what? Now, today, there are thousands of people in the Hurani tribe who are Christians, thanks to the mission and ministry of people like Jim. Now, I'm not saying to you tonight that this is always what it looks like to invest yourself in the branch, that all of you ought to quit your work and go and be full-time ministers and missionaries. I'm not saying that, but I do think that that ought to be what some of you do. But here's what I am saying, that if you choose to invest your life in the branch, you will never be disappointed. If you give yourself to the builder of this church, your life will mean something. Because whilst everything else will go up in smoke, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church will remain. And yes, whilst investing in him is very costly, it cost Jim Elliot everything, it wasn't a risk. Because Jesus has promised us, hasn't he? He will build his church. He will do it. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So friends, let me encourage you tonight to consider how you will invest yourself in him and his purposes. How, how you will make him your epicenter, your kilometer zero, the heart of your story. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the one spoken of here. Our great high priest and our glorious risen king, our branch. And we thank you that you have reached out even to us in our sin and called us, invited us, grafted us into your people, given us a purpose in seeing your name made known in this earth. God, please would you forgive us for the short-sightedness of building our lives on things that are not eternal, on things that will just go up in smoke. Forgive us, Lord, and reorient our hearts towards you. Help each one of us to know how to best use the breaths in our lungs to bring you glory and to build things that will last for eternity. God, please would you be pleased to do this work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.